Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with the Right Honourable David Lammy, Member of Parliament for Tottenham, addressing a host of issues, including racial disparity within the criminal justice system, white privilege and the importance of language. My name is David Lammy and I am the Member of Parliament for Tottenham and also Labour's Shadow Justice Secretary and Shadow Lord Chancellor. And thank you so much for talking to me today, David, because I'm really keen to uh, explore and discuss with you the issue of race in the justice system in England and Wales and disproportionality. But before we jump into it, I was also just really keen to spend a few minutes talking about language because I will sort of hold my hands up immediately and I wouldn't say I'm 100% confident with the language around this which probably puts me in the same camp as the vast majority of the country and of course since George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement more of these conversations are being had and I've noticed in myself as well as with others that language is quite important and some terms are banded around without people necessarily knowing what they mean. So first of all can I ask you do you subscribe to lumping people together and calling people BAME? Generally speaking, I think in Britain's black community, and when I say black in Britain, I mean people who whose origins were either from the Caribbean West Indies or indeed from the continent of Africa and have arrived in Britain through Commonwealth connections or parents, third generations have, uh, now obviously are British, they kind of resent the term BAME. Uh, it's a jargon term. It's really been applied to the community, Not no one's consulted on it. You should use the phrase black, Asian and minority ethnic if you want to use it at all. Uh, but because there are vastly different experiences across, say, someone who is of Chinese descent, of Pakistani or Bangladeshi descent, or of Nigerian descent, uh, it's increasingly a phrase and a term that doesn't really get at what we're talking about. And Black Lives Matter has allowed, I think, people to return to the term black and allow black communities, frankly, to talk about anti-black racism, which is distinct from some of the issues of diversity and that other ex communities can experience. And it's important to say, of course, that if you're Muslim, then 
Islamophobia feels very real to you at this point in our history. And there is a specific term that addresses what you experience in your daily lives. But Bay is a term that's used by governments and the powers that be, but it, it's increasingly resented, I think, on the ground. Yeah, because I certainly found in my sort of research that if I wanted to find statistics about black people, often it wasn't there because it was lumped together in the BAME data. And if I wanted to find stuff out about Chinese people, again, things are sort of lumped together. So it seems to have been put together as almost like a data collation thing. Well, what your experience goes to is a kind of tick box approach to issues of racism um, uh, and inequality. Um, I think that what happened is the language of racism and inequality, which is hard, tough, uncomfortable stuff, turned into a language that's really about diversity. And, and if you're talking about diversity, you then get this BAME, if you like, exercise. But what you find increasingly, particularly in the workplace, is that whilst progress is being made on gender and whilst progress is being made on LGBTQT issues, and it's not to say that there aren't real issues for both those groups, far less progress is being made in relation particularly to black communities, Pakistani communities, Bangladeshi communities in the workplace and a whole other host of areas of public life. Yeah, and I certainly um, remember when I was younger and I had um, a couple of black friends at university, but I sort of grew up with for a period of time where you couldn't, it wasn't the done thing to call someone black. And then it sort of became okay again. And I think that just represents another one of the challenges. So we're now back in the place where it's okay. And I remember having this discussion with my black friends and she said, yeah, I would describe you as my white friend's Edwina. And I said, good, because I would describe you as my black friend, Chisha. And so I think just, you know, to sort of set the scene for the pod, I think I think it's always important to talk about, about language and also the term actually white privilege. I've noticed people using that sometimes in a way that indicates they might not quite understand what it is. So would you mind explaining what you believe white privilege to be? Because many of our listeners, you know, I think would find that helpful too. Well, it kind of goes to the point that you've just made, Edwina, which is the truth is, and I hope I'm not, judging your life, I would have thought for the vast majority of your life, and you present to me as a upper middle class white English woman. It's uh, even worse than that, I'm in the aristocracy. And, and British, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, only, I can only say that because it, it would be absolutely fair to say that my wife <laughs> is in the same demographic as you. <laughs> so let's be absolutely fair about that. <laughs> so I've had lots of reasons to think about this and discuss these issues with her. <laughs> um, um, my wife and yourself, frankly, do not have to think about your racial identity on a day-to-day -day basis, or even a week-to-week -week basis. Most recently, because of Black Lives Matter, you would have thought about it a lot. But the truth is, for the vast majority of white people in our country, whatever their economic status, they're not thinking about their racial identity. Because in, in the context of this country, we're talking about majority communities, um, and uh, also historic communities who have 
been part of a process as, as, as white Europeans colonizing much of the world, they're not thinking about their racial identity. Whereas for black and brown communities, um, people from um, countries that were colonized, or worse, people from black communities that were previously enslaved, they are thinking about their ethnic and racial identity on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's a privilege not to have to think about your ethnic identity. And the reason they're thinking about their ethnic identity is because the truth is the story of enslavement for my descendants and of colonization for so many other people across the world is a harsh, brutal, painful story that went on for between 200 and 400 years, depending on where you came from. And on top of that, our current modern life has been built. And indeed, the premise of it, which was quite a lot of scientific racism, um, the distinction between the races begun. We all know that we're only one race, the human race. Uh, but I think grown-ups understand that we are a long way from achieving that united position. And therefore, I have to think about my race every day. My mixed-race children, mixed-heritage children, are thinking about their race on a fairly regular basis, even though I hope they don't have quite the experience I had growing up in this country. And that's what bursts this, this thing about white privilege. Now, I always want to emphasise, just as the final point, that there will be many people that hear that term who are white, who are working class or poor or deprived, who feel so far from privileged. <laughs> um, you know, they might be unemployed or all sorts of issues in their family life and, and their experience of living in the world. And they're thinking, hang on, I'm not privileged. But it is to say that you may well not be privileged but race isn't one of the things that makes your life harder. And that's where the, the idea of white privilege ha has come from. And it forces communities to think about the, the painful experiences, particularly of black communities in European and what we call white settler countries like Australia, Canada, and the United States. Okay, and then one last question on diversity before we move into the justice system more widely. But when it comes to um, people talk about diversity, but again, isn't diversity a catch-all phrase? You know, if I want to talk about race and black people or an issue to do with that, diversity is everything else, right? Yes. So yeah. diversity and inclusion is a buzzword, particularly in okay. kind of corporate settings in um in in big organizations but it rarely gets into the truth of why a black person or a muslim person is not getting their promotion in the company why there are no black or minority directors around the table yeah, and it can be gender it, as well right and it can be sexual orientation yeah, it can be yeah, whether you're disabled or not well and the second point is that yes, it includes gender, it includes LGBTQT, and of course they're very, very different experiences of um, a lack of equality. Uh, uh, the best way to put this is probably in this country, most people have in their family someone who is gay, and therefore hopefully 
can step into the world of inequality for or lack of equality for gay men and women because of that truth and that experience um, or certainly know a friend that is gay there will be very many people that do not know someone who is muslim do not know someone who is jewish do not know someone who is black and their experience as someone who is black may well be that they are a security guard or a cleaner in the in the in the, in the company that they work or um, someone on the buses it's not it's not a lived experience and so i i raise that because different equalities are very 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 different indeed it's impossible not to know a woman <laughs> it's not yeah. possible no. <laughs> not to experience the issues of gender uh, inequality you cannot say you are blind to those issues because if you live in the world you, you know you live in a place that's 50 percent uh, uh female yeah. but moving on into the sort of justice arena i guess and i wanted just to talk for a little bit about the police in england and wales and um, the disproportionality side of things um, within the police. And, and I, uh, from 2019, um, I noticed that only 1% of the police force in England and Wales was black. And that was 2019, we're obviously in 2020. But that strikes me um, as quite a small number with 93% being white. So what are some of the issues that sort of arise from that for you? Well, of course, here in London, there's a higher percentage of Met police officers who are black or from a minority ethnic background. Now, it's nothing like the percentage in the London population. I mean, London is a city that's uh, certainly over 40%, and I would have thought approaching 50% minority city. Um, and I think the police force um, is getting somewhere near... Um, um, 10 or 11 percent right uh, okay. but across the country it's one percent now what does that mean well it, the truth is it means that let's say if you're uh black or an ethnic minority in a city i know well a city i went to school in and lived in for seven years peterborough and you are being served by the cambridge uh, constabulary well in that city you've got significant ethnic minority populations, but you are not being policed by diversity in the Cambridgeshire Constabulary. In fact, I'd be very surprised if it's anything like 1% in, yeah. in, in, in Cambridgeshire. And so our policing model means policing by consent. It means we want a police service, another police force. And it means that issues like unconscious bias, issues like stereotyping, uh, issues like um, accountability and the sense that the police are for you become really, really problematic. It means that if you're policing uh, a deprived community that often in our country manifestly uh, got um, big issues of crime, the tendency to, for example, stop and search the black youth in that town or the Muslim youth in that town uh, because of assumptions around gang affiliation or indeed around something like terrorism, become very, very real. And then what happens is those communities do not believe that justice system is for them. And, and then to explain this personally, I was first stopped and searched at the age of 12. I had left home to buy some groceries for my mother. I was on my own. I was a lanky, geeky, spotty 12-year-old. And I was stopped and searched by four police officers. I was patted down quite aggressively. 
I was so scared that I wet myself. And I have been stopped and searched about 12 times since that in my life. Uh, I remember being stopped in the 2005 general election campaign. I was with my brother who was driving in a, in a nice car. My brother was a magistrate. We were surrounded by police, told to get out the car. They had guns uh, and they uh, wrongly thought we'd match the descriptions of drug dealers that were in the area. And again, it, yes, it's quite humiliating. It's, it's In fact, it's very humiliating to have to stretch out on a car bonnet, never mind terrifying, um, in front of your neighbours. And, you know, I've certainly done focus groups with black young people under 25. And I remember being in Hackney with about 20 or so black young, black young men. Only one of them had not been stopped and searched. All the others had. And let's be clear, of those 20, only three of them had a criminal record. And many of them had been stopped and searched many, 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 many times in their lives. And so what happens is that trust is breached. And so my own view is that when understanding it's a very blunt tool, stop and search, it should be intelligence led. It really should be. It should be done very, very uh, judiciously and affording great dignity to the person that you're doing it to. And at the moment, it's being done in cities like London a lot because, yes, we've got a big problem with knife crime and gun crime. But the truth is, I'm afraid, it's naive to assume that young men uh, are sort of walking around with knives. They, they're hidden. Yeah. They're carried by girlfriends. They're buried in homes. They're deployed in a certain way. Black kids will be alive to the fact, especially male black kids, that they're probably likely going to be stops and searched. So they will get other people to carry their weapons or but to play devil's advocate and i don't subscribe to this view but i've heard it a few times it's like well they're the people carrying the weapons and they're the people causing the trouble so of course they're the people who are going to get arrested more and put into prison more so what would you say to that well actually the the, the truth is there are large majority white communities both in london uh, in vast parts of the country that are that have issues of deprivation. Let's take a, a, an area like Salford in the Greater Manchester area, and you see that the proportion of stop and search is still um, uh, higher for the very tiny black communities that exist in that city. And if you compare the stops and search in Moss Side and the stops and search in Salford, there's huge disproportionality even though there's, a, there's definitely equivalent crime. Let me give you an example of this, um, Edwina. Let's imagine that whilst we're talking, there is a young man at um, a prestigious university like Oxford smoking a joint. Um, I can see from your face that you're not hugely surprised. By <laughs> Shocked and appalled. <laughs> by that. Fact. Never. <laughs> uh, um, let's assume that down the corridor at that college in Oxford, there is a professor smoking a joint. Um, you're not really that surprised by that truth either. The truth is both those two individuals are in a gated community. They're in a very safe community. And actually, if I suggested that I was going to call the police, most people would think that that was a gross waste of police time. 
Now let's imagine a similar young man, same age, but not in a gated uh, ivory tower community in an Oxford college, but, and I'm sorry to pick on Oxford for this example, but you know what I mean. Let's imagine a young man um, in Brixton in a housing estate, in a, in a flat that he shares with his mum and uh, younger, uh, three younger siblings. He steps out of the flat onto the stairwell downstairs and he rolls his split and he has it there. And unfortunately for him, someone smells the marijuana and calls the police. He gets a criminal record. Um, uh, he gets a caution. And for that young man, he begins a journey that harms his chances of going to university, harms, harms his chances of getting a job, and may even uh, propel him into a life of criminality because of the truth of those things. Similar young people doing similar things with a very, very different experience of stop and search and a very different experience of how the law works. And that gets us into the criminal justice system and the realities of the criminal justice system for different people in our country. Okay, so would you be an advocate of defunding the police like we've seen in America after this George Floyd situation and many other people, quite frankly, that have been killed at the hands of the police? Do you think that's a route that we could possibly go down in this country? No. <laughs> but let me just be absolutely clear. The call to defund the police in the United States is a call well made. And that's because in the United States, you have bloated police departments, heavily militarised, sitting in the same communities as chronically underfunded education services, particularly serving uh, African-American communities and Latino communities with no youth services. Uh, and very, very poor social welfare. So, of course, there is a very live debate, debate in the United States about the reallocation of funds uh, into, into those communities. And I would support that, that, that debate. Here in the UK, we've got a very different picture, because I'm afraid the truth of the UK is the police in the UK have been defunded for a decade. I mean, police funding has been cut by 21,000. We've got 21,000 less police officers. We've got police stations that did exist that no longer exist in communities up and down the country. There isn't a community in Britain, frankly, black or white, that's not been calling for more money for the police. Where are the police? Where's neighbourhood policing gone? Um, no, the truth is the police have been defunded for a decade and it hasn't changed issues of disproportionality. I think the... Debate that we've had in Britain has been described largely. It's largely been, you know, when you've listened to certainly people in my political party talking about it, what they've called for is the public health approach. They've talked about the best way to deal with things like gang violence and knife crime is to look at what was done in the city of Glasgow, to go down the public health approach, to invest in youth services, in mental health services, in special educational needs, to be holistic at the way you approach those communities. And that can really bring down issues like um, violence. And it's been very successful in the city of Glasgow, where they've not just been dealing with gangs, they've been dealing with things like domestic violence. So I think the British language is about emphasising the public health approach, but also in supporting calls to better fund policing in our country.
Yeah, because I also think having worked in and around the justice system for about 20 years myself, I've seen and I've sat on boards advising the governments and, you know, seen how when things go wrong for people, a housing problem is a housing problem, should be for the housing department. So, you know, the, when the health goes wrong, that should be an issue for the health department. But of course, when all those things completely break down and fail, everything gets dumped into the justice departments and into the Ministry of Justice, and then it becomes their problem. Right. Of course, then they can't sort out all the health problems, all the housing problems, and wrangle with the legal criminal side of it as well, <laughs> and the victims. So it's about trying to push things, the solutions, back into the communities of which they came. That's right. Um, <laughs> but then, anyway, little rant over. But then if we move on to the courts, um, I was interested to see that it was 1% of all court judges are black, just yes. 1%. And then they, uh, and then, the, and this is statistics from the Judicial Diversity Report from 2019. But actually, it went on to say that 7% were from the black and ethnic minority community. But actually, the numbers are so low, which is why they have to put the data set into that BAME yeah. ca catch-all yeah. phrase. Yes, yes. And there have been issues because across those BAME groups, there are big differences. So, for example, uh, when I was looking at these issues a few years ago for the review that I did into the criminal justice system that I was asked to do by David Cameron, um, there were some concerns that um, that a large percentage of that 7% were from Jewish backgrounds that obviously, are, uh, you know, have a different experience, certainly experience discrimination in certain ways, but generally not the same discriminations in the employment market. So it masks a real, real issue. And again, the best way to think about this is here in London, there has been a big move over 20 years. It's involved both governments to ensure that there's diversity in the teaching profession. And it's had results. You know, um, grades in London at GCSE and, and, and A-level are much higher than they've been. In fact, we've got black and minority ethnic communities outperforming white communities now because of where London education has got to for a lot of effort over many, many years. And it, I think it's probably impossible now in the city of London not to be in a London borough uh, and not to visit the comprehensive or academy schools and not to meet several black head teachers and certainly several black assistant head teachers, deputy head teachers and senior black staff in our schools. Uh, of course, there are, you know, it's patchy. Um, and it's different. It can be different in primary settings to secondary settings, but broadly across the London borough, there now is quite a degree of diversity in the teaching profession and it's delivering results. <laughs> Strangely, in the justice system uh, at the moment, uh, if you look at the criminal justice system, very, very sadly, despite ethnic minorities making up 14% of the UK population, for the reasons that I was indicating earlier when I used examples around um, cannabis use, in our young offenders institutions at the moment, 51% are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. In the adult prison population, between 25 and 27% are from a black, Asian and minority ethnic background. That's huge. So what I'm saying is if you look at the people in the criminal justice system? Who, who are the people in our Crown Courts? Who are the people coming through our magistrates' courts? They are often Black, Asian, minority ethnic. But then you look at the judiciary, 
or the magistrate, and you see no, no such diversity. Yet, I qualified as a barrister. Oh God, I've lost count, but it was now um, 28 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, I know many senior uh, black and minority ethnic barristers uh, and now QCs and silks. I know many senior and experienced solicitors. And the truth is that they apply to become judges because it's obviously very prestigious to become a judge and people want to become a judge. But you know what? They don't get through the system. The system knocks them out. And I saw time and time again that the fall off between first applying and then interview and then not getting through is considerable. The feedback loops are poor. The system has got some real issues, it seems to me, with uh, structurally discriminating against black and minority ethnic applicants and is being very, very slow to fix the problem. And at the same, uh, just one other point, at the same point, it's important to understand in other major common law jurisdictions, that's jurisdictions like our own with the same legal system in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia, They've made huge progress with diversity, particularly from indigenous native backgrounds, but also from their ethnic minority populations. And obviously the United States has had a slightly different system. Of course, there's a massive cadre of African-American, Latino and others in their judicial system. So we are an outlier now. and We're doing very, very badly. Yeah, because this sort of comes on to something about consciously recruiting in a way of how you want to see an increase in numbers of whether it's black people or Chinese people or more women, you actually have to do it consciously. So do you think when you were talking about the recruitment of whether it's black judges or barristers coming through, it, there's an element of that as well? Definitely, because, because we know that actually in the legal profession, both the bar and the solicitor's profession have had made huge breakthroughs. Uh, but what we're seeing is at senior levels, there remain significant issues. Again, let's give you another way to look at this. The medical profession, which is perhaps a profession where, you know, it, it's meritocratic to the extent that, you know, if you're a good surgeon, you're just a good surgeon. And it's really clear that you're a really good surgeon. But if you think about who are our senior consultants, Across, our, across the medical profession, you start to see huge diversity uh, at, at the top end of the medical profession. And I think the current uh, head of the BMA, the, the British Medical Association, is, is currently an ethnic minority. Our senior nurse in Britain is currently an ethnic minority mm -hmm. woman. Uh, you see in the medical profession, people seeming able to advance because they are just fantastic. Um, and they've been in the system long enough. Why are we not seeing that in, in the legal profession? Well, we're not seeing it because actually talent in America is way more opaque. It's way more subjective. And discrimination and unconscious bias can play a much larger role. And so you see this problem then of recruiting in your own image of a certain way to think about what a good judge looks like. And by the way, let's be clear, in, in, in the legal profession, this is not just in terms of ethnic minorities and racial diversity, it's also in course of gender diversity. It's extraordinary and quite, quite wrong that there have not been senior fantastic female lawyers in Britain 
who could not have made their way to the scene of, to our Supreme Court. I do not accept that there's only been one woman capable of that role uh, in this last period. It's not my experience, certainly, of fantastic senior lawyers. Why is that the case? It's because the case has been discriminatory, frankly, against senior women in the same way it has against ethnic minorities. So solutions to that? I, I suggested a target, uh, which I thought was actually a pretty reasonable. And, you know, uh, some suggested to me that I should be suggesting a quota, which is much more, you know, there has to be this amount of women, there has to be this amount of ethnic minorities. I suggested there should be a target which at least makes the system bend towards reaching something over a period of time. So you say, by 2030, we want to see this many judges. It was rejected by the government and the senior judiciary. And so I'm afraid we're in this place where they're offering lots of training, which is patronising, frankly, to very senior uh, lawyers, doesn't really get to the point. I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that Lord Kekar the current head of the Judicial Appointments Commission um, is going to be able to make progress in this area. Um, I suspect that I will have to return to the issue 10 years on from my review and the system will have got hardly any better because frankly there's been resistance from government, resistance from senior judiciary and a sort of sticking your head in the sand from the Judicial Appointments Commission. Yeah, do you ever get a reason why when something, because um, I've been involved in a few reports that are with government and the recommendations all get accepted and then most of them get ignored. And then it usually takes a decade to uh, get anywhere. I mean, sort of even to take one step, sometimes it takes 10 years. And I'm particularly talking about women in justice in this sense. But um, do you ever get a reason as to why they might throw out such a, um, a straightforward suggestion? Well, well, the reason, of course, was... David, we can't set a target because, you know, it has to be on merit. Not understanding, of course, that there are loads of white middle class men <laughs> for whom merit is always determined in their favour. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so we are where we are. And it is very frustrating because, of course, I made 35 recommendations uh, let me be clear, they were recommendations that, of course, would deal with issues of disproportionality, but actually would just improve the, the justice system and, and, and be as important for white communities, particularly white poorer communities, as important on issues of gender. Um, and the government sort of has been pretty, you know, it was, it was very welcoming of my, of my review. But when you look at what's been, what's been implemented, um, uh, I think there are six recommendations that have been implemented in full. And, and so the spirit in which the review was delivered, it was a cross-party review, of course, um, where David Cameron was reaching across the aisle to me, a Labour politician who's very different to him, creating consensus on an issue. And I think now that, you know, I'm getting to the point, I think we're getting to the point in the UK where we have major controversies. We have riots, we have uh, murders like the ones of Stephen Lawrence, um, we have huge pieces of work, Scarman, McPherson, we have reviews like mine and others. They don't get implemented. And guess what? The people now are becoming very frustrated uh, and very angry about kicking things into the long grass and about this sort of piecemeal um, uh, approach to taking these issues, difficult issues, very, very seriously. 
And just going back to stats for the benefit of the listeners, black men are 53% more likely to receive a custodial sentence despite higher non-guilty pleas. And they're 25% more likely than white men to be remanded into custody. And for black women, it's 30% of black women are more likely to be remanded into custody at Crown Court and 25% more likely to receive a custodial sentence. I mean, they're big statistics. Vast. And so let's talk about those remand statistics uh, for, for those who might not know fully what remand is. Remand is the situation in which you've, you've been charged with an offence, you've not been found guilty yet in a court, you've gone before the magistrate court or the Crown Court to determine whether you should spend time in jail before waiting for your case. Um, and there's an assessment of how dangerous you are, generally speaking, or what your likelihood of fleeing is. And at the moment, we've got a famous person on remand in New York is Grislaine uh, Maxwell, um, who was not successful and is currently sitting in prison waiting for her court, her moment in court. Now, what do those figures tell you? Well, they tell you that it has been deemed that 30% more black women and black men, on the whole, are deemed more dangerous than their white counterparts. If that isn't, in the end, about you often stereotypes <laughs> about expectations of black people, I don't know what is, frankly. That degree of disproportionality is weird uh, and unusual. And in my experience, uh, there are definitely going to be issues of structural racism and, and discrimination caught up in those in, in, in those figures that uh, that account for that degree of difference between white populations who've committed crimes and between black populations who've committed crimes. And that's the system. And it also goes on to say that black people represent 3% of the population, but 12% of the prison population but that equates to 21% of children in prison. Yes. And then when you go from the adult estate into the youth estate and the children's estate, yeah. the numbers yeah. are even more alarming. Yeah. So, and that's why I said in my review, and certainly when I was looking at black men, that per capita, we have a bigger issue of disproportionality than even the United States. And it's really interesting because in Britain, certainly the beginning of Black Lives Matter, there's a tendency when these things happen, you see horrible things going on in the United States, to look across the Atlantic and sort of say, oh my God, they're so racist, they're so awful, it's so much worse than here. It's a sort of European tradition. <laughs> um, not understanding that issues of racism and structural discrimination can be very unconscious and are very subtle and very nuanced. And actually, in our criminal justice system, the disproportionality here is even worse uh, for black men, particularly. You know, these are very, very serious issues. I was really grateful that David Cameron and actually Michael Gove asked me to look at these issues. It was a different era. Um, it was only five years ago, but it was an era where we were, you know, big tent politics, reaching across the aisle, working together more constructively. We've now gone into a very partisan place. And it's frankly quite depressing that Boris Johnson and some of his advisors, Dominic Cummings, Mrs. Namira, uh, just, you know, take a very different view to these issues and frankly don't, don't buy these issues of dis disproportionality, don't want to address these issues of disproportionality. 
and, and therefore we're very unlikely to make progress anytime soon. Because it would seem like a good time to do a sort of Lamy review part two, would it not? <laughs> Maybe you should start a sort of informal one um, because it's so interesting. I think you know? I will return to it um, five years on. I will, right. I will return to it um, five or ten years on, definitely. And a lot of these problems, you alluded to the fact that it's structural and systemic. So, you know, if we're to turn to solutions, surely those solutions have to be structural and systemic as well. And whether you look at the, the police system, the court system, the prison system, it's almost like you have to somehow, what, dismantle a system and rebuild it in order for it to go from dysfunctional to functional. I mean, you know, it's not just about race, is it? It's about the systemic uh, problems that come up amongst all those systems. But that seems like quite a Herculean task, even though we shouldn't feel overwhelmed. We, we shouldn't. So there are some things in my review that are profound systemic changes. So, for example, uh, we have one of the toughest criminal records regimes in the world. You have to declare your criminal record for any application, for any job. And other systems uh, that I pointed to in my review seal your criminal record after you've not committed crime for a few years um, or wipe your criminal record. They never wipe it from the criminal justice system. If you get back into trouble, your criminal record is sitting there for the courts and for the police service. But you do not have to declare it to employers. So you have a clean slate. You've served your time. You've not committed a crime for several years. You can get on, um, you can apply to the courts and your record is either sealed or wiped. And what that means is there's a better employment prospect, of course. Now, surprise, surprise, if you can't do that, you have, you know, you have communities. And I can see this in Tottenham where you've got lots of young black men who spent time in the criminal justice system, committed crimes when they were in their late teens and now in their late 20s are settling down, got a girlfriend, want a job. And guess what? They can't get a job. You know, a third of people on Job Seekers Alliance in this country have a criminal record. And I recommended change, big change. Uh, that's not just for black and ethnic minorities. That's change for all people in the criminal justice system and certainly many, many white people in the criminal justice system. And again, the government have been slow to move. Now, they've just signalled that they're prepared to move. And they might be bringing forward something in September. I'll look at it closely. But that would be a big, profound change that gets people back into work because employers do not need, unless we're talking about, obviously, you know, um, a rapist that wants to work with children, for example. You know, there will be some crimes that are just too difficult to. But the vast majority of people's crimes, you know, ABH when you were younger or. Or, or theft. These are not things that you should be having to declare derogueur because when the employer is faced between you and somebody else without the criminal record, guess who they plump for? Um, and therefore, uh, the taxpayer ends up picking up the bill. But you're right, it does call for big system changes. It calls for looking hard at the pipeline into crime. Who are we excluding from school? Who are the young people in the care system? School performance and how that relates to offending. I go back to the public health approach I raised before because I'm afraid the relationship between um, special educational needs and mental health is a big issue. What do I mean by this? Well, I see this in the London Borough of Harringay, representing Tottenham. I see young people who've got dyslexia, 
who've got ADHD, who've got mild Asperger, who should be being treated by the health system and their parents supported, don't get into the health system, get to their teens, start presenting in a really difficult way in school, very quickly excluded and very quickly into the criminal justice system. In the same London borough, I see better off families in Muswell Hill or Highgate who do get the medication, <laughs> do get the statement and the special educational needs, and certainly don't end up in the criminal justice system. So until we're fixing those issues that are systemic at the beginning of the system, it's really, really hard. And the criminal justice system does end up picking up the pieces. So if you are the justice secretary, you are in government, you remain in this role as the justice secretary, what would be your priorities to tackle? I, I respect the fact that that's quite a big question to maybe end on, but you probably thought about it a lot. You know, where, where do you think you'd start? Well, I um, think that the youth justice system needs reform. You know, unfortunately, we've got young people committing very serious crimes, drug trafficking across the country on county lines, large quantities of cocaine, um, very serious knife crime and gang activity. And we've got a justice system that's not addressing them. And then we're often we find the most junior lawyers, not the most senior lawyers. I think that we ought to be able to make progress with the amount of women in prison. I'm yet to meet a woman in prison who's not there because of a man um, who's pimped her or abused her. And when you put a woman in prison, you're often putting her children into the care system or the criminal justice system. And so I think we ought to be able to make progress in that area. Um, I'm really concerned about probation, uh, you know, the Chris Grayling reforms. I don't think there's anybody in the country who thinks that they were successful, um, left or right of the political spectrum. And what that means is that we've really, really, really messed up our rehabilitation system in this country and the support for offenders, particularly when they come out of prison, and therefore we have very high recidivism rates, we will need to fix the probation system. And anyone who wants to see a reduction in prison numbers will need to fix the system. And let's be clear, at the beginning of the Blair period, we were putting in prison about 45,000 people. And that in this last period has gone up to 85,000 people. We're an outlier in Europe in terms of the amount of people we're putting into prison. And our recidivism rates are the worst in Europe, which means that prison isn't actually working. Um, so there are some big challenges to actually get to what works to reduce offending and reduce crime in our country and not actually escalate it and make it worse. And that does fall to a very serious Ministry of Justice that's working um, in partnership, obviously, with Home Office colleagues to actually fix and address these issues. Yeah, it's one thing I've always been totally fascinated by is when there's the data that we prove that what we're doing is not working, i.e. building prisons and the way we're treating people in prisons is not working, the recidivism rates speak for themselves, yet the Treasury will still release millions and millions of pounds um, in order for more prisons to be built. Well, let me say that I, I, I think we've got some terrible Victorian prisons which are falling apart, where we've got three people sharing a cell, which have got really terrible facilities that actually help with rehabilitation. And I'm particularly in, interested in the facilities that help with employment and skills. I've visited prisons in other countries that have fantastic, you know, mechanic yards, almost like colleges when it comes to uh, training people to plaster, to paint, to tile, 
um, in, in software engineering, the sorts of jobs you want prisoners to do so they don't commit crime. Uh, we've got nothing like that. So we do need better prisons, but that is a different conversation to more prison places. Very different. So I would make the distinction between building better prisons and, and prison places. David, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the sustained interest that you have had in the criminal justice system over many, many years and continuing to press the issues and narrate the issues. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.